0: Hello and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. If you have been following along with our presidential run, of podcasts, you may be expecting a podcast on Martin Van Buren, our eighth president. Instead, what you will get is a podcast on American expansion and manifest destiny. This will cover the presidencies of Martin Van Buren, who is the eighth president but a one-termer. We'll also discuss briefly William Henry Harrison, our ninth president who died in office, first president to die in office, and also our first Whig president, as well as John Tyler, who became known as his accidentcy, the first VP to become president. And we'll see the 25th Amendment installed. And then we'll go to James K. Polk, who is the 11th president. With us, as always, is Jean Anzanakis, our resident history buff. Jeannie, take it away.
1: All right. So we have a lot going on in today's podcast. In the years after Jackson's presidency, we see a number of one-termers and even a one-month-long presidency. Martin Van Buren's one term presidency was plagued by the consequences of Jackson's decisions as president. Martin Van Buren was Andrew Jackson's hand picked successor. A lawyer and politician from New York who had helped win President Jackson needed Northern support during his presidency. The Panic of 1837 was a direct response to the closure of the Second National Bank. The Trail of Tears as a result of Jackson and Van Buren's policies towards Native Americans. His refusal to support the annexation of Texas and the economic crisis resulted in his unpopularity and William Henry Harrison's election as president. The first uh, Whig president, the Whigs created and executed a brilliant marketing campaign to elect their candidate to the presidency. They used Harrison's reputation as a war hero to their advantage and painted him as a man of the people, saying he grew up in a log cabin that could not have been further from the truth. William Henry Harrison was born into a wealthy Virginia planter family. His father was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was well-educated, and his family was well-connected, and he married into an even better and well-connected family. He spent years attempting to win elected office. His alliance with the Whigs would prove to be beneficial for him, but the victory would be short-lived. He died one month after taking the oath of office. His vice president, a Southerner, John Tyler, became president. This was the first time in our country's history that a president died in office. At this time, there was no clear rule in the Constitution that the vice president becomes president, just that the vice president takes on the responsibilities of the president. Does this person stay vice president and just do all the things that the president would be doing? John Tyler argued he was, in fact, the president. Harrison's cabinet attempted to assert their power and attempted to control him, but Tyler was not having it. They told him that, you know, William Henry Harrison would talk to them about certain issues and they would vote, get a consensus, and that would Harrison, and that's what Harrison would do. And Tyler refused. He said, it's not happening. The Whigs referred to him as his accidency. The Tyler precedent would stand until the 25th Amendment formally made the vice president the president after the death, removal, or inability of the president to serve. As president, John Tyler vetoed many Whig-supported bills. And as a result, they expelled him from the party. He spent the duration of his presidency battling the Whigs in the legislative branch, even to the point of threatened impeachment. John Tyler, a Southerner and supporter of states' rights, supported the belief of manifest destiny and began the process of annexing or adding Texas to the Union in the last year of his presidency. John Tyler, a Virginia plantation owner and slaveholder, continued to be a supporter of states' rights in his post-presidential career and ended up supporting secession. He was elected to the Confederate legislature and died shortly after. As a result of his support for the Confederacy, his death went pretty much unrecognized in the Union, as many thought him to be a traitor. The notion of Manifest Destiny is an important one. This was a term that was first used in 1845 and is attributed to editor John L. O'Sullivan. In an article in support of the annexation of Texas, he argued that it was the destiny, the fate of the American government to control the continent. Our God given right, if you will, to control from the Atlantic to the pacific now you have to consider the argument behind those words arguments in support of manifest destiny ranged from the united states being superior to spread democracy we were doing them a favor by bringing this form of government to the people living in these territories we would have access to pacific ports It's also important to note that not everyone supported expansion. Some felt it was unconstitutional. American expansion would infringe upon the rights of those already living there. And many Northerners and abolitionists feared this would only further spread slavery. Now, who was living there? If you listened to our previous podcast we discussed how President Jackson had removed Native Americans from the southeast to lands west of the Mississippi. This was, for the most part, unorganized territory. And for the majority of American history, you have Spain as our neighbors in the southwest. This changes when Mexico gains their independence from Spain in 1821. The war for independence from Spain took years and was costly. Mexico controlled a vast amount of territory, which is hard to do when you are newly independent, in debt, and have an emerging superpower as a neighbor. Consider all of the issues that the United States had when it first gained its independence. And the United States just had those 13 states along the eastern coast. Like the United States, in their own post-revolutionary war years, they were in debt. At first, Mexico welcomed American settlers and traders that had at one time been banned by Spain. The territory of Texas was sparsely populated, and Mexico sold land grants in Texas to decrease their debt with some caveats. They had to become Catholic, Mexican citizens, and follow Mexican laws. This slightly open door was kicked open by floods of white settlers who quickly outnumbered Mexican settlers and set up Cotton plantations and brought slavery with them. The original agreement with Mexico allowed for a few hundred settlers to come into Texas. The number of settlers rose to 30,000. When Mexico banned slavery in 1829, the talks of a Texan rebellion increased. By 1830, Mexico banned any new settlers into Texas from the United States. Now, we have to enter James K. Polk into the conversation. James K. Polk was a lawyer from Tennessee and a political ally of Andrew Jackson. He began his political career in the House of Representatives even serving as Speaker of the House. After serving many years in the House of Representatives, he was elected the governor of Tennessee. His upbringing in the western United States helped to shape his attitudes towards slavery and westward expansion. His parents were originally from South Carolina, but moved west to Tennessee for the opportunities it provided. His father became a wealthy planter and slave owner. After the removal of natives from the South, James K. Polk sold his plantation in Tennessee and bought land in Mississippi. This area would eventually become known as the Deep South. It was much more difficult for slaves to run away and reach freedom an outspoken supporter of Western expansion and annexation of Texas, made him an obvious choice as a candidate for president for the Democrats. When he was told of his nomination, he replied, the office of the president should never be sought or declined. His campaign promises of a swift annexation of Texas Finalizing the northern border with Canada in Oregon and later using the rallying cry 5440 or fight. His opponent was famous senator, former secretary of state, and Westerner Henry Clay. Henry Clay was famous in the political world. His campaign slogan was Who is James K. Polk? Could you imagine that was his campaign slogan? Who is James K. Polk? James K. Polk was considered a dark horse candidate now as a former horse owner yourself I'm sure you can talk to us a little bit about that term dark horse candidate
0: you're funny the the horses that I owned were for the most part very slow horses with the exception of can't we all get along who did have some success won a couple of races we uh, you know but I digress. So from for wagering terms, um, Henry Clay was the favorite. A dark horse is kind of a compliment for someone unassuming um, or a horse that's unassuming, but not expected to win, but you know, turns out to have some surprising ability and ends up with some success. So a dark horse, people don't know about, but it's about to, to have some success, maybe unexpected in some cases, but that's what the term is.
1: So no one expected James K. Polk to win. Henry Clay was a powerhouse. It was a close election, but Polk's vocal and clearer support for the annexation of Texas put him over the top. Henry Clay's loss was really the modern day equivalent to Hillary Clinton's loss. Nobody saw that coming. He had promised only to serve one term. And so he quickly set out to accomplish his goals. As president, Polk brought slaves to the White House. He supported the extension of slavery into westward territories. This was a hot button issue of the time period. In fact, the hot button issue of the time period. As a slave owner, he profited from the institution from numerous letters he sent at this time we know a number of things when it comes to polk and his stance on slavery he purchased slaves while being president he hired a number of violent overseers for his slaves prior to his move to mississippi runaway slaves from his plantation in Tennessee was a consistent issue. From those facts, we can assume a number of things about Polk and slavery. At whitehousehistory.gov, there is a wonderful article on Polk and slavery. If you are interested in learning more or just want more specific information, that is a great place to go. Now, we have to talk about the Republic of Texas. This is very much a condensed version. But if you want to read more about this and look at some primary source documents, which I hope that you do, a great place to go is the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. You can go to tsl.texas.gov and get a wealth of information. So... When we left off talking about Texas, the year was 1830 and Mexico had banned any new settlers from coming in. If you remember, they had only originally agreed to allowing a few hundred, but 30,000 settlers came in. Calls for independence from Mexico and annexation to the United States started and the United States had attempted to purchase Texas from Mexico as early as 1826. In 1834, when Santa Ana becomes president of Mexico and throughout their constitution, Many Texans wanted the old constitution restored. The one thing people tend to remember about this time in history is the Alamo. The Alamo has been made famous in in various films. The Mexican army crushed the rebellion at the Alamo, but it became a symbol for the fight for Texan independence, that rallying cry of remember the Alamo. Texas declared their independence and created a constitution that mirrored those of southern states in the United States and established a government similar to that of the United States. At the Battle of San Jacinto, Santa Ana's forces were defeated, and Texas became an independent republic, its own country, okay? Fearing being brought into conflict, the United States did not respond to the request to annex Texas right away. In 1845, Mexico finally agreed to recognize Texas's independence, but only if Texas agreed They would not allow the United States to annex the territory. Towards the end of John Tyler's presidency, he sent a resolution to Congress on the annexation of Texas, which only needed the vote of a simple majority. He knew he would not have the needed Northern votes, so he went for a resolution. In 1845, Texas became the 28th state during Polk's first year as president. Now, you have to understand that Mexico was furious and cut off diplomatic ties with the United States. Polk attempted a last-minute effort to purchase not only Texas, but also present-day California and New Mexico for $30 million dollars but the offer was turned down. The biggest issue was that there was a border dispute between the United States and Mexico. Mexico believed the border to be the Nueces River, whereas the United States believed the border to be the Rio Grande, which was further south. When the president of Mexico refused to meet with the American diplomat, President Polk ordered General Zachary Taylor to the Rio Grande to protect what he considered to be American territory. In the eyes of Mexico, they had just been invaded by the United States. So from 1846 until 1848, the United States and Mexico wages what? The United States refers to as the Mexican-American War, but Mexico refers to it as the United States invasion of Mexico. So perspective is important here. This is not a war most Americans remember. This is not a war that we have really even built monuments to, okay? This is very much a forgotten war for the United States, not for Mexico by any means. This is a war that cost the United States almost 100 million dollars. This was the first war that the United States waged on foreign soil. We gained a significant amount of territory. Some people supported the war. Some within the United States government argued that we should attempt to seize control of all of Mexico. Others considered it, and this is a direct quote, a conscienceless land grab. They felt we had taken advantage of a weaker nation. It's important to note that during the war, Mexico changed presidents a number of times. There is incredible amounts of political instability within Mexico. They are newly independent from Spain They had recently waged war with France. They had waged war with Texas, with Texas's fight for independence. And now they are waging war with the United States. After American forces were killed at what they believed to be the border of Texas, President Polk asked for a declaration of war. He claimed American blood had been spilled on American soil. For two years and various battles within Mexico, the Mexican-American War led to many casualties. Almost 14,000 Americans and an estimated 25,000 Mexicans. In one of the battles of the Mexican-American War, American troops from the state of Illinois took Santa Ana's wooden leg after he was forced to very quickly flee and brought it back to Illinois, where it is to this day in a military museum. You know, for Santa Ana, he lost his leg in battle and um, he even had a state funeral for his leg. Where um, And the people of Mexico had you know, very much a love-hate relationship with him. They dug up the leg, dragged it through the streets, in, you know, fury. So when the Illinois troops took Santa Ana's leg back, it was a big deal. And Mexico wants the wooden leg back. Texas wants the wooden leg back. But this museum in Illinois has no intention of, of giving the leg back. I read an article Um, which said something along the lines that their response was, they can have the leg when it walks itself back. Famous generals in the United States military gained notoriety from the Mexican-American War. I mean, people such as Braxton Bragg, who Fort Bragg was named after, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson... And both Ulysses S. Grant and Zachary Taylor, who gained not only political notoriety and were each also elected president of the United States. When the war ended with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, Mexico gave up two-fifths of its territory. Areas of present day California, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, and Utah. Mexico had to recognize the Rio Grande As the southern border of Texas. In exchange, the United States paid Mexico $15 million and agreed to settle any additional claims that U.S. citizens had against Mexico. That number totaled around $2 million. Later, in 1853, the United States would pay an additional $10 million to Mexico for the southern parts of what is now present day Arizona and New Mexico. This is historically known as the Gadsden Purchase. The land was desired for a southern branch of a transcontinental railroad line. In 1846, prior to the end of the Mexican-American War and the knowledge of what territories might be gained with victory, the Wilmot Proviso was proposed but never passed. The bill hoped to ban the spread of slavery into the lands gained from the Mexican-American War. The new lands gained inflamed the heated debate on the extension of slavery. The Missouri Compromise Line, or the 3630 parallel, was no longer going to work. You know, if you remember, any territory that entered the Union below that line had to enter as a slave state. Any territory above that line had to enter as a free state. A new compromise would be needed between slave and free states. That compromise would also be short lived. And the issue of slavery would soon come to a head with the outbreak of the Civil War. In addition to gaining territories through a war with Mexico, in 1846, James K. Polk agreed to finalize the northern border with British controlled Canada. Tensions over the Oregon Territory ran pretty high. The rallying cry of 5440 or fight. And the firm held belief of manifest destiny spurred the desire to solidify the border with British controlled Canada. War almost broke out between the United States and Britain over this territory. But luckily, cooler heads prevailed. You know, that rallying cry of 5440 or fight. Well, we didn't fight over 5440. The United States and Britain agreed to the borderline of the 49th parallel. The Oregon Treaty was negotiated by Secretary of State James Buchanan, another future president, and the land acquired from this territory would eventually be divided into both the Oregon and Washington territories. During Polk's first and only term as president, he accomplished quite a lot. The United States had achieved its goal of manifest destiny. The United States now controlled from sea to shining sea. With Pacific ports now available, the United States had new trade routes to Asia and could compete a little bit more with Britain. Polk died shortly after his term as president finished. His legacy is that of being a supporter of westward expansion and manifest destiny, his belief in American superiority, And of course, his role as a slave owner. By the end of his presidency, the United States had drastically increased in size. Sectional tensions were reaching an all-time high. So you have to understand that through these events, the stage is being set for the Civil War
0: jean thank you. Looks like we're going to get close to the Civil War now. Never thought we'd be talking about my uh, my horses in the podcast, but here we are. And one interesting takeaway that I have is that you mentioned that people always talk about the Alamo. I think the battle cry was, remember the Alamo, so that's what people remember. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.